Good evening. Thank you. <laughs> Two good replies. This is where the life is. This is where everybody grumbles. No, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. I wonder if you have ever had an experience of doing something that you didn't really plan to do. It wasn't necessarily bad or good or thought out, but it just kind of happened. And then it happened again. And at some point, you decided, I am going to consciously do this thing that I never intended to do and set out to do. And for a while, you choose to do it, and then uh, it becomes a habit. And kind of like the way it started out, you don't think about it that much anymore. Maybe it uh, has to do with eating. <laughs> That's one of my problems. I'd like to suck this in, but eventually I'd have to breathe. <laughs> or uh, maybe it has to do with drinking. Or, um, well, you can guess what the third picture is all about. Um. Nothing necessarily wrong with eating, drinking, or having a friend of the opposite sex. Um, but at, at times, uh, things can get carried away. And, and you say, well, why did you do that? And I don't know. I didn't plan on it. It just happened. And it happened again. And, and at some point, you like it. I like eating more food than I should. What can I say other than be honest? Scum's a place where we are honest with each other. So, And you choose it, and then it becomes a habit. Now, I can't give you the good Mike Sayers illustrations of uh, <laughs> when I was 16, I set out to prove the church was wrong and not believe in God and lay as many women as I could. I mean, we've heard those stories, but now there's a nine-month break. and I, I can't tell you the good John Swanger stories of I broke the record for robbing the most number of banks before getting caught. I just don't have that exciting a background. <laughs> About as exciting as it gets is that I was thinking about when I had two good knees and enjoyed playing some basketball. That ended when I hurt one of them at age 19. It's <laughs> a while back. But uh, we played in a church league. Uh, Lutherans do that kind of thing sometimes. 
And it was the Missouri Synod Church that had the gym, so we always played at, at their church. And uh, as far as I could tell, there really wasn't much difference between uh, the spirit of that competition and what went on at our uh, public high school. <laughs> it was certainly one of the last areas of my life, playing sports or anything competitive, where the term sanctification crossed my mind as something that ought to get applied. And one day, we were playing a game with another Lutheran church, and I think we had a referee in training. Because the guy who was paired with him was the the head of the referees, and I knew him because his son was my age and we were in school together. But this other guy just made one bad call after another. And the first time I said something, uh, it just came out. (laughs) And the second time it just came out. And then I realized that I kind of enjoyed yelling at this stupid ref. And, And I said a few more things and it kind of became a habit over the course of that game. Well, until the head referee whistled a technical foul on me. And he took me aside, and I think he realized what was going on, and he was kind of pastoral almost, and just said, you're too smart to keep doing that. Just shut up and play the game. And Well, that scared the whatever out of me and, um, and stopped me in my tracks. Or, who knows how foul-mouthed I might have become. Certainly knew some friends. Um, hard to believe somebody my age now had friends who could compete with the crudest language you've ever heard. But I I think it's true. Now your assignment for the evening is to figure out what in the world that has to do with Exodus. We are in a periodic series, which means whenever the leadership decides we're going to do it, um, where we work through the passages in a children's Bible, which is nice because it goes through the whole Bible and it doesn't take 20 years. Um, and tonight's passage is a nice short one spanning the first 13 chapters of Exodus. <laughs> I am not going to read them all to you, for which you will be grateful. We left off with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt in a pretty good situation in which Joseph was second in command only to Pharaoh, king of Egypt himself. And they had grain when large parts of the Middle East were suffering with famine. 
But one of the haunting words out of any place in the Bible, and certainly out of the first 13 chapters of Exodus, comes in chapter 1, verse 8. It almost sounds better in the King James Version that five of you may have heard of. (laughs) There arose a new king who knew not Joseph. Or as we would probably say it today, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. No, there's not one chance in a hundred that a new pharaoh wouldn't have heard of Joseph. That's not what not knowing him means. It means I'm the new guy in the block and the last set of politicians are gone. That sounds kind of modern. (laughs) And to be blackballed and we're going to do everything differently. And among the things they did differently was to enslave the offspring of Jacob's sons. And for nearly 400 years, as the Israelites multiplied rapidly with larger families than the Egyptians, They had a huge cash cow of slave labor, some of whom were no doubt behind building the very pyramids that we can still go and see in Egypt today. Here is uh, the timeline. Abraham, these are all round numbers, around the year 2000 B.C., Joseph around 1900, Moses coming to the fore around 1500. Approximately 400 years go by. And uh, the Bible zooms through them with a few sentences. Until things got so bad that God says, I have seen and heard my people's distress, and I'm going to send a liberator, a man by the name of Moses. And if you're my age, you probably got to know him best with Charlton Heston movie called The Ten Commandments. And if you're my kids' ages, as more of you are, it was The Prince of Egypt and a cartoon. And for a select few of you, it was VeggieTales. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a good selection or not, but select few. God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh. He tells him to do it. Moses puts up every protest he could think of, not surprisingly. <laughs> And he says, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron. He's the better speaker along with you. But you're not getting off the hook. And we come to chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. 
which say, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Let my people go. That inspired African Americans for centuries leading up to and after the American Civil War. But I will harden, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Great assignment. The guy who's not a good public speaker, go to the dictator, tell him something he doesn't want to hear, and he's going to refuse. Great job. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Scarlett emailed me this afternoon and says, would you give us one memory verse for the week for our kids? <laughs> out of 13 chapters. This is what I came up with. I don't know if it's the best one, but it's pretty good. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Oh, and these weren't spring chickens. <laughs> Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And what happens over... The next bunch of chapters is a series of plagues. <laughs> Moses, not only are you to go to Pharaoh and give him a message he's going to refuse, but you're going to make him really flippin' mad by one plague after another. And it's a very consistent pattern. Moses says, the Lord says, let my people go. Uh, initially, it's, it's just let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to have a festival to our God. Pharaoh sees through it right away. Yeah, once you get that far away, then you'll be able to run further away into somebody else's land that we can't come into. So Pharaoh refuses. Moses says, right, here comes a plague. Bad things happen. The people grumble and cry, and Pharaoh acts like he's relenting and says, all right, all right, I'll help out. Moses pleads to God. God stops the plague. And as soon as things calm down, Pharaoh says, um, no, I won't. 
Not once, not twice, not three times, not four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. <sighs> Maybe you like reading about plagues. I don't know. Blood. The Nile River turns blood red. Frogs, gnats, flies, livestock are attacked. Boils on the livestock and on human beings. Hail. Well, there's one we know about in Colorado. Some other parts of the country, they know frogs, gnats, and flies. <laughs> Locusts, darkness, and finally, the death of each Egyptian firstborn son. Now, I find it fascinating that some commentators have pointed out that Actually, there's a logical sequence to what's going on here. I had never heard of it until a friend came back about a year ago from a trip to Florida and said she had experienced red tide, which is when algae in the water do something and water can take on a red-like appearance and it can be incredibly irritating to anybody who's out near it. And if that happens, if there are frogs in the water, they don't want to stay in the water. So they jump out and, and populate the land. But eventually, because they're amphibians and they need to be back and forth between water and land, they die. And that draws insects that like to hover around dead things. And if the livestock eat any of this, uh, or if the contaminated insects... Uh, sit on top of the oxen, they can get infested and boils can break out and the humans that take care of the livestock can get contaminated and, well, hail can happen anytime. We live in Colorado. <laughs> that doesn't need a cause, but um, if it's heavy enough and it washes a home of locusts or grasshoppers, they can start migrating and swarming in abundance. And to this day, there are parts of North Africa and the Middle East that can have a, a plague of grasshoppers come over, so much so that it covers the sun and it's as if the day was dark. And who knows, the firstborn among farmers were the ones who had the primary responsibility for the flocks and the plants, and if all that was contaminated, maybe they got sick and died too. Or maybe that's all irrelevant and this was totally supernatural. <laughs> you can take it either way. The Israelites were protected. Partly because they lived in the land of Goshen. <laughs> you can see it there in green. Largely swampy. Um non-urban areas, and the Egyptians primarily lived in the different cities that you see populating the Nile Valley there to the left part of the slide. But also God promised to exempt them and even to exempt them from the plague of the firstborn if they would put some blood on the tops and doorposts of their homes. 
a fascinating, a grotesque, a depressing pattern. But there's one that goes along with it that intrigues me and fascinates and depresses me even more. And it has to do with Pharaoh hardening his heart. If all we read was chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, which was up on the screen a minute ago, we would see in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. But that's probably the headline over the entire story. As you look at what the text of Exodus says, plague by plague, you get a fascinating pattern. Come back. Oh, crumbs, it's gone. (laughs) Right, that's what I animated, and I shouldn't have animated it. Allow me to read to you what's not on the slide. First two plagues, 713 and 722, Pharaoh's heart became hard. It appeared. Kind of like the plague, just out of thin air. Thank you, magic worker. Or you could translate that, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Hebrew verb is hazak. That sounds kind of nasty. It is. Got another magic line for me, somebody? Praise Jesus. In the third and fourth plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Different verb, kabad. Same verb that can sometimes mean to cover something or to lay heavily on top of something. Is there another magic line? Hallelujah. This is more fun to do it this way anyway. By the time we get to the fifth plague, going back to the first verb, now God is the subject. The Lord hardened his heart. Next, Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts. Switch verbs. Next, the Lord says, I have hardened his heart. Same verb. Next. Oh, and the last four times, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Switch verbs. As far as I can tell, I thought maybe there'd be something interesting going on here with the difference in the words, but there isn't. (laughs) But I had already made the slide, so I thought, well, you can at least experience what I went through. (laughs) But the other sequence I find 
fascinating. And I think it matches the food and the drink and the women and the complaining at the referee and whatever else is your equivalent. Our hearts are just hard. No agency, no conscious thought. We're just not in touch with what God wants. And we do something. And it may not be horrible. And it may not be great. It may not even be an issue of right or wrong. I know. That's what I would say too. But then, and maybe we do it a couple of times, for whatever reason we start consciously doing it. Until it starts to become unconscious again because it's become a habit. In the Old Testament, God is often said to do things pretty directly to people that in the New Testament gets phrased as he gave them over to their own desires. Three times in Romans 1, talking about the idolatry of the Gentile people, Paul says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. And then two verses later, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust, dot, dot, dot. And two verses later, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. He he didn't cause some new or unexpected consequences. He just let the natural consequences of their choices take effect. Like some of us do with certain things our kids do. Does it need extra punishment? Just let them see what happens if they do that. I think of another example when I was in high school and had gotten my driver's license. And I came from a community in western Illinois of about 50,000 people. Didn't have nearly the traffic that we have here. It could have busy times, but uh, early in the mornings, there were places that Well, we had more stop signs than stop lights. (laughs) Stop signs were really annoying, especially when you couldn't see anybody for yards around. (laughs) And there were no police traps that you could see. So easy to just kind of slow down a little bit and roll through the stop sign. Kind of like... um, I've seen people in Denver do. (laughs) Done it once or twice. And I remember the first time I did that. In a nice but firm way, my dad said, hmm, 
That's what some people call a California stop. <laughs> a what? Yeah, you just kind of roll through the stop sign. And then he launched into this story about when he was a young driver. He grew up in the same community. And once thought nobody was watching and he just blazed through a stop sign. There was a hidden police trap and he got pulled over and got a pretty stiff fine and a reprimand and... He didn't want me to have to have that experience. How nice of him. <laughs> he probably didn't want me to get killed or kill somebody else either. And it got nipped in the bud. But what happens if you get used to rolling through stop signs? <laughs> I'm glad. Because if you're old enough to drive... You might start doing it on purpose and get away with it and nothing bad happens. And each time you do it, it becomes easier to do it the next time. And I can remember just a few years ago being out on a Sunday morning, not too far from our house and coming up to a side street that had a red light to a main street. And I was daydreaming and the light turned green and I didn't move because I was daydreaming. And a good five to ten seconds after the light had changed, a guy who had to be going 70 miles an hour in a 40 zoomed through that red light. And I thought, thank you, Lord, if I had started to turn, I'd be dead. Oh, this is the problem of when you come up with signs, pictures. you got to remember to show them. Have you hardened your heart <laughs> to anything? However little or big, and you say it's no big deal. And maybe it never has been. And maybe it never will be, but there's no guarantee of that because some of the consequences could at some point be tragic. I don't know what your most interesting question is out of Exodus 1 to 13. What kind of assignment is it to give somebody the task of preaching 13 chapters? You know, it's what you give to somebody who teaches seminary and they're getting back at you. <laughs> or think you can handle it. I'll put a positive spin on it. We could have asked questions like, why was every Egyptian family affected when Pharaoh was the one calling the shots? And it's interesting that Exodus 1.22 explains that this same Pharaoh, when he took power, gave the order to all the people, every single person, every Egyptian in the land, who saw a Hebrew boy born shortly after his birth, was told, you are to put it to death, so that the Israelites don't go, grow strong and have a powerful army in an era when 
men were the soldiers. Or maybe your question is, why the 400 years wait? And way back in Genesis, we read in a context where a generation means a 100 years, that in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites, one of the people living in the land of Canaan, has not yet reached its full measure. And they're not to be punished by the Israelite conquest until things are the worst for them. And it is 100% obvious they are not going to repent in any way, shape, or form. Or maybe you're intrigued by... uh, When God is said to be involved in something where humans sin, when Satan is said to be involved, book of James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And just a couple of verses later, we read that God is the giver of every good gift and only good and perfect gifts, which are from above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change. He doesn't give evil on some other day, like shifting shadows. Or Maybe you're interested in terms of what can we expect from our prayers for an exodus, for an escape from difficult, maybe even tragic circumstances. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you or me, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. Oh, a way out so I can escape it. Now, that's what I wish he would have written. A way out so you can endure it, so you can bear up under it as some translations put it. Is there an area where you've hardened your heart? Is there an area where someone else has hardened their heart against you? I think of a family I know who just lost a 37-year-old daughter after a long and rare illness. And it's a family where the mother of the three sisters would say, in all seriousness, we are a close, tightly knit family. (laughs) Except that she screams and bad mouths her adult kids at the slightest provocation of you name what. And the girls don't think they are a close, tightly knit family. And if you were to ask her about it, she would say, well, that's, 
is because we're so close, we can be that way with each other. Poop. Or a stronger equivalent that I've heard from behind this microphone. Pharaoh started off pretty casually. He just had a hard heart. (laughs) And then he liked the results, and he consciously hardened his heart. And he did it again, and he did it again. And finally, God said, fine. I leave you to it. And the Old Testament writer said that's equivalent to the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart because he withdrew his power of mitigating or softening the consequences of those choices in any way. Can we take a minute? And pray the Lord and see if our hearts need to be softened in any way. Lord, it's uh, daunting and depressing to read about these plagues. We're, We're thrilled at the result that we'll get to in the weeks to come, the exodus and salvation for the Israelites, but we're not there yet tonight. We long for the final exodus that you provide for people in Christ that can mean transformed circumstances in this life But whether it does or not guarantees us amazing, incredible, embodied life in a new world beyond anything we could ever imagine or hope for. Would you use that promise to soften us now? We'd much rather read down the road that the Lord softened our hearts. Whether that's family that we've been estranged from for quite some time, whether it's a habit that we know we should address more consciously that we simply aren't, whether it's just going through life on a day-by-day basis doing the motions of the responsibilities we have without consciously thinking, how can I make this a more distinctively Christian experience and environment? Lord, you know the answers to those questions in our lives. I certainly don't. But I pray you will speak to us And make us more tender and make us more open to the circumstances in which you want to soften our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.